The Death of Christ, John R. W. Stott. Christianity is a rescue religion. It declares that God has taken the initiative in Jesus Christ to rescue us from our sins. This is the main theme of the Bible. You are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. The Son of Man came to seek and to save what is lost. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. More particularly, since as we have seen, sin has three principal consequences. Salvation is about our liberation from them all. Through Jesus Christ, the Savior, we can be brought out of exile and put right with God. We can be born again, receive a new nature, and be set free from our moral bondage. And we can have the old discords replaced by a harmony of love. Christ made the first aspect of salvation possible by his suffering and death, the second by the gift of his spirit, and the third by the building of his church. The first will be our theme in this chapter, the second and third in the next. Paul described his work as a ministry of reconciliation and his gospel as a message of reconciliation. He also made it quite clear where this reconciliation comes from. God is its author, he says, and Christ is the one through whom he brings it all about. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ. Again, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. Everything that was achieved through the death of Jesus on the cross had its origin in the mind and heart of the eternal God. No explanation of Christ's death or humanity's salvation that downplays this fact does justice to the teaching of the Bible. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Again, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile himself, all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. But what does this reconciliation mean? The answer is that it indicates either an action by which two parties in conflict are brought together or the state in which their oneness is enjoyed and expressed. Paul says that this reconciliation is something that we have received through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We have not achieved it by our own efforts. We have received it from him as a gift. Sin caused a separation between us and God. The cross, the crucifixion of Christ, has brought us back together. Sin made us enemies. The cross has brought us peace. Sin created a gulf between us and God. The cross has bridged it. Sin broke the relationship. The cross has restored it. To put the same truth across in different words as Paul does in his letter to the Romans, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. But why was the cross necessary for our salvation? Is it really vital to Christianity? What exactly did it achieve? We must now go on to consider the centrality and meaning of the cross. In order to grasp that the death of Jesus as a sacrifice for sin is central to the message of the Bible, we must first go back to the Old Testament. Old Testament religion was sacrificial right from the start. Ever since Abel brought lambs from his flock and the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, the worship of God involved bringing sacrifices to him. Altars were built, animals were killed, and blood was shed long before the laws of Moses. 
but under Moses, after the covenant between God and the people had been endorsed at Mount Sinai, what had been somewhat haphazard was regularized under God's law. The great prophets of the 8th and 7th centuries BC protested against what they saw as the formalism and immorality of the worshippers, but the sacrificial system continued without interruption until the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in AD 70. Every Jew was familiar with the rituals attached to the different offerings, as well as with the special occasions, daily, weekly, monthly, and yearly, when they had to be offered. No Jew could have failed to learn the fundamental lessons in all this process of education, that life of a creature is in the blood, and that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Old Testament sacrifices are a visible symbol that points forward to the sacrifice of Christ, the prophets and psalmists foretold it in words. We can see the death of Jesus foreshadowed in the persecuted but innocent victim described in certain psalms that were later applied to him. We detect him in Zechariah's shepherd, who is stricken and whose sheep are scattered, and in Daniel's prince or anointed one who is cut off. Above all, we can find him in the noble figure who appears in the servant songs towards the end of the prophecy of Isaiah, the suffering servant of the Lord the despised man of sorrows who is punished for the transgression of others, is led like a lamb to the slaughter and bears the sin of many. As Jesus himself explained to his disciples, this is what is written, the Messiah will suffer. When Jesus came, he knew that he had a clear destination to get to. He recognized that the scriptures were pointing to him and that their expectation was to be fulfilled in him. This is particularly clear at the points that refer to his coming sufferings. The turning point of his ministry came at Caesarea Philippi, when immediately after Simon Peter had confessed to him to be the Christ, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. It is this must, this sense of compulsion laid upon him by the scriptures, that revealed the Father's will, which constantly recurs in his teaching. He had a baptism to undergo, and felt himself constrained until the job was done. He kept moving steadily toward the time of his death, which in the gospel accounts it is said at several points not to have come just yet, until at last, shortly before his arrest, with the cross in his sight, he could say, Father, the hour has come. The prospect of the ordeal before him filled him with apprehension. Now my soul is troubled, and what can I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. When the moment of his arrest finally arrived, and Simon lunged out with his sword to protect him, slashing the ear of the high priest's servant, Jesus rebuked him, Put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup my father has given me? According to Matthew, Jesus added, Do you think I cannot call on my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? The supreme importance of the cross that the Old Testament foretold and Jesus taught is fully recognized by the New Testament authors. The writers of the four Gospels devote a disproportionate amount of space to Christ last week in death when compared to the rest of his life in ministry. 40% of the first Gospel, 60% of the second, 33% of the third, and almost 50% of the fourth are given to an account of the events between his final entry into Jerusalem and his return to heaven. It is particularly striking in the case of John, whose gospel has sometimes been divided into two equal halves that have been entitled the Book of the Signs and the Book of the Passion. 
What is implied in the Gospels is stated explicitly in the New Testament's letters, most notably by Paul, who never grew tired of reminding his readers about the cross. He himself expressed a vivid sense of gratitude to the Savior who had died for him. The Son of God loved me, he could write, and gave himself for me, and therefore may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. To the Corinthians, who were in danger of being tangled up in the subtleties of Greek philosophy, Paul wrote, Jews demand a sign, and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. This is what he had in fact asserted when he first came to Corinth from Athens on his second missionary journey. I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And again, what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. The same emphasis on the cross is to be found in the rest of the New Testament. What Peter thought and wrote about it we shall see later. In the epistle to the Hebrews comes the clear statement that Christ has appeared once and for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. When we reach the mysterious and wonderful book of the Revelation, we catch a glimpse of the glorified Jesus in heaven, not only as the Lion of the tribe of Judah, but as a lamb, looking as if it had been slain. And we hear the countless multitude of saints and angels singing his praise, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. So from the early chapters of Genesis to the final chapters of Revelation, we can see what some writers have called a scarlet thread, which enables us to trace our route on the map that is the Bible. What the Bible teaches concerning the centrality of the cross has been recognized and celebrated by the Christian church from the very beginning. Many churches mark new members with the sign of the cross at their baptism and erect crosses over the graves of those who have died. Church buildings have often been constructed on a cross-shaped ground plan, with nave and transepts forming a cross, while many Christians wear a cross on lapel, necklace, or chain. None of this is accidental. The cross is the symbol of our faith. The Christian faith is the faith of Christ crucified. There is no Christianity without the cross. But why? What does it mean? I cannot begin to unfold the meaning of the death of Christ without first admitting that much remains a mystery. Christians believe that the cross is the pivotal event in history. Little wonder that our tiny minds cannot fully take it in. One day the veil will be altogether removed and all will become clear. We shall see Christ as he is and worship him through eternity for what he has done. Now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. So wrote the great Apostle Paul with his massive intellect and his many profound insights. And if he said it, how much more should we? I have deliberately chosen to limit myself here to what Simon Peter wrote about the death of Jesus in his first New Testament letter. I have three reasons. The first reason is that Peter was one of the inner core of three apostles. Peter, James, and John form a trio who enjoyed a closer relationship with Jesus than the other disciples. So Peter is as likely as anyone to have grasped what Jesus thought and taught concerning his death. In fact, we find in his first letter several clear recollections of his master's teaching. 
Second, I turned to Peter with confidence because at the beginning, he was himself very reluctant to accept that Christ had to suffer in the way that he did. He had been the first to acknowledge the uniqueness of who Christ was, but he also was the first to deny the need for his death. He who had declared, You are the Messiah, shouted, Never, Lord, when Jesus began to teach that the Christ must suffer. Throughout the remaining days of Jesus' ministry, Peter held on to his dogged hostility to the idea of a Christ who would die. He tried to prevent Jesus from being arrested and, even after this proved futile, followed him at a distance. When he denied three times that he even knew him, and the tears he wept were tears of shame. Yes, but also despair. After the resurrection, when Jesus taught the apostles from the Bible that the Messiah had to suffer these things and then enter his glory, that it was necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory, did Simon Peter at last begin to understand and believe. Within a few weeks, he had grasped the truth so firmly that he could address the crowd in the temple cloisters with the words, God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. And his first letter contained several references to Christ's sufferings and glory. We too may at first be reluctant to admit that the cross was necessary and slow to understand its meaning, but if anyone can persuade and teach us, it will be Simon Peter. Third, the reference to the cross in Peter's first letter are asides. If he were deliberately gathering arguments to prove that the death of Jesus was essential, we might suspect him of having some axe to grind, but his references to it are more about behavior than belief. He simply urges his readers to live their Christian lives consistently and to put up with their sufferings patiently, and then refers them to the cross for their inspiration. Christ died as our example. Persecution is the background to this letter. Emperor Nero was known to be hostile to the Christian church, and many Christians feared for their future. There had already been spasmodic outbreaks of violence, and it looked as though worse was to come. The advice Peter gives is straightforward. If Christian servants are being treated badly by their pagan masters, let them make sure that they are not receiving a punishment that they deserve. It is no credit to them to accept a beating for doing wrong. Let them rather suffer for the sake of what is right and welcome criticism for the name of Christ. They are not to resist, still less to take revenge. They must submit. To bear unjust suffering patiently brings God's approval. Then at once, Peter's mind flies to the cross. Undeserved suffering is part of the Christian's calling, he asserts, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you example that you should follow in his steps. He was without sin or deceit, when he was insulted, he chose not to retaliate. He didn't issue any threats when he suffered. He simply committed his tormentors into the hands of the just judge of all humanity. Christ has left us an example. The Greek word Peter uses, unique here in the New Testament, denotes a teacher's copybook, the perfect alphabet on which a pupil models his script as he learns to write. So if we want to master the ABC of Christian love, we must trace out our lives according to the pattern of Jesus. We must follow in his steps. Coming from Peter's pen, the use of this verb is all the more striking. He had boasted that he would follow Jesus to prison and to death, but in the event had followed him at a distance. But then, after the resurrection, Jesus renewed his call and commission to Peter in his familiar terms, follow me. So Peter was urging his readers to join him as he tried now to follow more obediently in the master's steps. The challenge of the cross is as uncomfortable now as it was then and is as relevant today as it has ever been.
perhaps nothing is more completely opposed to our natural instincts than this command not to resist, but to bear unjust suffering and overcome evil with good. Yet the cross urges us to accept injury, love our enemies, and leave the outcome to God. But the death of Jesus is more than an inspiring example. If this were all there is to it, much of what we find in the Gospels would make no sense. There are those strange sayings, for instance, in which Jesus said he would give his life as ransom for many and shed his blood, blood of the covenant, he called it, for the forgiveness of sins. There is no redemption in an example. A pattern cannot secure our pardon. Besides, why was he weighed down with such a heavy and anxious apprehension as the cross approached? How shall we explain the dreadful agony in the garden, his tears and cries and bloody sweat? My father, if possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Again, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. Was the cup he had, that he had hesitated to drink from the symbol of death by crucifixion? Was he then afraid of pain and death? If so, his example may have been one of submission and patience, but it was hardly one of courage. Plato tells us that Socrates drank his cup of hemlock in the prison cell in Athens quite readily and cheerfully. Was Socrates braver than Jesus? Or is it that their cups contain different poisons? And what is the meaning of the darkness and the cry of abandonment and the tearing from top to bottom of the temple curtain in front of the Holy of Holies? There is no way of understanding these things if Jesus died only as an example. Indeed, some of them would seem to make his example less commendable. Not only would much in the Gospels remain mysterious if Christ's death were purely an example, but our human need would remain unsatisfied. We need more than an example. We need a savior. An example can stir our imagination, kindle our idealism, and strengthen our resolve, but it cannot remove the stains of our past sins, bring peace to our troubled conscience, or restore our relationship with God. In any case, the apostles may leave us in no doubt about the matter, they repeatedly associate Christ's coming and death with our sins. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. You know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. Here are the three great writers of the New Testament. The apostles Paul, Peter, and John, unanimous in linking his death with our sins. Christ died as our sin-bearer. In his first letter, the way Peter describes the relationship between Christ's death and our sins is this. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. The expression to bear sin sounds rather strange to us, and we shall need to go back to the Old Testament to understand it. The idea occurs frequently in the books of Leviticus and Numbers. It is emphasized many times that those who break God's laws bear the responsibility for their actions. For instance, if anyone sins and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands, they are guilty and will be held responsible. But at times, it is implied that somebody else can assume responsibility for the wrongdoer. In Numbers 30, which deals with the validity of vows, Moses explains that a vow taken by a man or a widow must stand, but a vow taken by an unmarried girl or by a married woman must be confirmed by her father or her husband respectively. If, when the man hears of the woman's vow, he says nothing to nullify it, and it later proves to have been foolish, 
it is said that he must bear the consequence of her wrongdoing. Another example comes towards the end of the Book of Lamentations, in which after the destruction of Jerusalem, the Israelites cry, Our parents sinned and are no more, and we bear their punishment. This possibility of someone else accepting the responsibility for and bearing the consequences of our sins was further taught by those Old Testament blood sacrifices in the laws of Moses that seem so strange to us today. Leviticus 10 tells us God made provision for the sin, offering to take away the guilt of the community by making atonement for them before the Lord. Similarly, on the annual day of atonement, Aaron was told to lay his hands on the head of the animal chosen to be what we call the scapegoat. In this way, he identified himself and the people with it. He was then to confess the nation's sins, symbolically transferring them to the goat, which was driven out into the desert. We then read that the goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place. It is clear from this that to bear somebody else's sin is to become their substitute, to take responsibility for the penalty of their sin in their place. But all this was only a temporary provision, for as the writer to the Hebrews says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So in the longest servant song of Isaiah, chapter 53, the innocent sufferer, who signifies the coming Christ, is very deliberately described using the language of a sacrifice. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, both because he did not open his mouth and because the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, so that his life was made a guilt offering. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, but he also, like a sheep, was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. All this clear language of substitution, describing him as stricken for the transgression of my people, is summed up in the chapter in the two phrases that we have already reflected on, he will bear their iniquities, and he bore the sin of many. When at last, after centuries of preparation, Jesus Christ himself arrived, John the Baptist greeted him publicly with the extraordinary words, Look, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Similarly, when later the New Testament came to be written, its authors had no difficulty in seeing the death of Jesus as the one final sacrifice in which all the Old Testament sacrifices were fulfilled. This truth is an important part of the message of the letter to the Hebrews, the old sacrifices were of bulls and goats. Christ offered himself. The old sacrifices were repeated over and over again. Christ died once and for all. He was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. This last phrase brings us back to Peter's expression. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. The Son of God identified himself with the sins of humanity. He was not content to just take our nature on himself. He took our sins on himself as well. He not only became flesh in the womb of Mary, he was made to be sin on the cross on which he died. This last phrase is from Paul and is perhaps the most startling statement that the Bible makes about the death of Jesus, but we cannot escape its significance. In the previous verses, Paul has affirmed that God refused to count our sins against us. In his completely undeserved love for us, he decided not to make us answerable for our sins. He would not allow it to be said of us, as it was said of so many in the Old Testament times, that they will be held responsible. So what did he do? 
God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus Christ had no sins of his own. He was made sin with our sins on the cross. As we reflect on the cross, we can begin to understand the terrible implications of these words. At twelve noon, darkness came over the whole land that continued for three hours until Jesus died. With the darkness came silence, for no eye should see and no lips could tell the agony of the soul that the spotless Lamb of God was now enduring. The accumulated sins from the whole human history were laid upon him. Voluntarily, he bore them in his own body. He made them his own. He took responsibility for them, and then in desolate spiritual abandonment, a cry was wrung from his lips. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was a quotation from the first verse of Psalm 22. He had probably been reflecting during his agony on its description of the sufferings and the glory of the Messiah. But why did he quote that particular verse? Why not one of the triumphant verses at the end? Why not, you who fear the Lord, praise him? Or, dominion belongs to the Lord? Are we driven to conclude that it was a cry of human weakness and despair, or that the Son of God was imagining things? No. These words must be taken at face value. He quoted this verse from the Bible as he quoted so many others because he believed that he himself was fulfilling it. He was bearing our sins, and God, whose eyes are too pure to look on evil and who cannot tolerate wrong, turned his face away. Our sins came between the Father and the Son. The Lord Jesus, who was eternally with the Father, who enjoyed unbroken communion with him throughout his life on earth, was momentarily abandoned. Our sins set Christ to hell. He tasted the agony of a soul alienated from God. Bearing our sins, he died our death. He endured, instead of us, the penalty of separation from God that our sins deserved. Then at once, emerging from that outer darkness, he cried out in triumph, It is finished! And finally, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And so he died. The work he had come to do was completed. The salvation he had come to win was accomplished. The sins of the world had been carried away. Reconciliation to God was available to all who would trust the Savior for themselves and receive him as their own. Immediately, as if to demonstrate this truth publicly, the unseen hand of God tore down the curtain in the temple. It was no longer needed. The way into God's holy presence was no longer barred. Christ had opened the gates of heaven to all believers and 36 hours later he was raised from the dead to prove that he had not died in vain. The simple and wonderful account of the sin-bearing of the Son of God is strangely unpopular today. The idea that he should have borne our sins and taken our penalty is said to be immoral or unworthy or unjust, and of course it can easily be distorted and made a mockery of. We are not suggesting that there is nothing left for us to do, of course, we must return to the shepherd and overseer of our souls, dying to sin and living to righteousness, as Peter went on to say. Above all, we must not forget that all this is from God and that it springs from his unimaginable mercy. We are not to think of Jesus Christ as a third party wrestling salvation for us from a God who is unwilling to save. No, the initiative lay with God himself. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ precisely how he can have been in Christ while at the same time making Christ to be sin for us, I cannot explain. 
but the apostles state both truths in the same paragraph without any awkwardness. This is one of the paradoxes of the Christian faith, to be accepted along with the equally baffling paradox that the evidence points to Jesus of Nazareth being both God and man, and yet one person. If there is a paradox in who he is, it should come as no surprise that there is one in what he did as well. But even if we are unable to resolve the paradox or fully understand the mystery, we can still rely on the direct statements of Christ and his apostles. Their united testimony is that he bore our sins, a phrase whose meaning in the Bible is that he paid the penalty of our sins for us. Three considerations make it clear that this is indeed what Peter meant. First, there is one of his early addresses recorded in Acts in which he said, The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. His Jewish listeners would have no difficulty in grasping the implied reference to Deuteronomy 21, which indicates that anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. The fact that Jesus ended his life hanging on a tree, for the Jews regarded being nailed to a cross as equivalent to being hanged on a tree, meant that he was cursed by God. Instead of roundly rejecting this idea, the apostles accepted it, and Paul explained it in Galatians 3. He pointed out that Deuteronomy also says, Cursed is anyone who does not uphold the words of this law by carrying them out. But then Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. What these verses mean in the context is plain and inescapable. It is this, the fully justified curse that rests on those who break God's law was transferred to Jesus on the cross. He has set us free from this curse by taking it upon himself when he died. Second, this passage in Peter's first letter contains no fewer than five clear references back to Isaiah 53. We have already seen that this chapter portrays an innocent sufferer who was wounded for the transgressions of others in a sacrificial death. There is no doubt that Jesus himself interpreted his mission and death in the light of this chapter, as did his followers after him. For example, in Acts 8, when the Ethiopian official asked the evangelist Philip, to whom the prophet was referring in this passage that he was reading in his chariot, Philip immediately told him the good news of Jesus Christ. Third, Peter makes other references to the cross in this letter that confirm what we have already seen from chapter 2. He describes his readers as having been redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, and even as having been chosen for sprinkling with his blood. Both expressions look back to the original Passover sacrifice at the time of the Old Testament exodus. Each Israelite family was to take a lamb, kill it, and sprinkle its blood on the door frames of their house. Only those who did this were safe from the judgment of God and escaped from the slavery of Egypt. Peter boldly applies the symbolism to Christ, as also does Paul. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. His blood was shed to rescue us from the judgment of God and the tyranny of sin. If we are to benefit from it, it must be sprinkled on our hearts, that is, applied to each of us individually. Peter's other significant reference to the cross is in 3.18. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Sin had separated us from God, but Christ wanted to bring us back to God, so he suffered for our sins an innocent savior dying for guilty sinners, and he did it just the once, decisively, so that what he did cannot be repeated or improved upon or even supplemented. We must not miss what this implies. 
It means that no religious observance or good behavior on our part could ever earn our forgiveness. People accept the caricature of Christianity that claims that we can. They see religion as a system of human merit. God helps those who help themselves, they say, but there is no way that this view can be reconciled with the cross of Christ. He died to take away our sins for the simple reason that we cannot remove them from ourselves. If we could, his atoning death would be unnecessary. Indeed, to claim that we can end up in God's good books by our own efforts is an insult to Jesus Christ. It is equivalent to saying that we can manage without him and that he really need not have bothered to die. As Paul put it, if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. The message of the cross remains in our day as in Paul's foolishness to the wise and a stumbling block to the self-righteous, but has brought peace to the conscience of millions. There is healing through the wounds of Christ, life through his death, pardon through his pain, salvation through his suffering.